the year of servanthood is a lot bigger and more complicated than just about what happens on a weekend. As a matter of fact, the year of servanthood has two massive pieces that we're going to be talking about this year. But all of it is hinging and based upon the premise that was set forward last week by Pastor Justin. Did he not do a great job in teaching? I thought he did wonderful. And Pastor Justin came up and said, you cannot do if you are not with, right? You must abide in Christ, be with Him in order to get anything done. If you're detached from Him, there's just no point. So no, if you're trying to run around and do a bunch of stuff and not getting poured into by God, it's going to be a waste of time. It's going to burn you out and it'll probably damage you. You must give or serve out of a heart that is being poured into and connected to the Lord. But in this year of servanthood, we're going to try to do things differently. The two massive pieces that stand before us is, number one, what does it mean to have the heart of a servant? Jesus Christ, he said, I did not come to serve, uh, excuse me, to be served, but to serve. The idea is that of all people who should have been served, it's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet, he came to serve. He then, with his disciples, washed their feet and said, I just set you an example. You're supposed to do that. What does that mean? I think it means we're supposed to live differently. I don't think we're living like that. Now, my big fear in this weekend is there's a bunch of soft-hearted people in our congregation that are already doing too much. And they're going to walk out of here going, oh my gosh, I'm convicted, I have to do more. Okay, you need to mellow out. You're already doing too much. Stop it. I'm not talking to you. Right? I'm talking to your husband. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just joking. This year of servanthood is to change how we think, how we live. It's about getting our hands dirty. It's about getting in there and getting something done. It's more about changing our Monday through Friday than our weekends. Do we need help on the weekends? Sure we do. Are there things that God's calling you to be involved in? Yeah, absolutely. But it's more about the Monday through Friday when we don't see you. That's what the year is about. It's about taking the time uh, in your cubicle at work that when someone is, you can tell they're just tore up inside, slowing down your day and stopping and saying, are you all right? That's the heart of a servant. It's this whole idea where you're driving down the road and you see someone that you can clearly tell, listen, they're hurting. Maybe it's a lady and her kids and they're stuck on the side of the road. You stop what you're doing and you go and help out. It's more about changing this attitude that we have of entitlement the world owes me this. The world doesn't owe you anything. To what does the world need? We were put down here to be Christ. What would Christ do? And are we doing that? Are we going through our world and changing people's lives by serving them? Or do we still have some idea of that's not my job? I don't think a Christian should ever say that. 
It's your job if somebody brought it up to you and it came into your view and God tapped you on the shoulder. It is your job. It's my job. Around here, if something needs to get done and I'm able to do it, it's my job, right? I don't care if it's moving chairs or putting out coffee or fixing something or picking up people's trays and throwing them away. Whatever it is, that's my job. Why? Because I'm a servant. You walked into my house, right? Just like I'm in your house. Why is it our house? Because our Father in heaven, this is his house, and he let us walk around. So, yeah, we host people, but we don't just host them here. We host them out there, right? Changing Monday through Friday, it's also about bringing glory to God that he deserves. It's living a life that matters. Our task in this world is to make God known. And when you love on somebody to serve them, you say, they're going to say, why are you doing that for me? You say, because I was told to love. Well, by who? By my dad. That's it. He told me that I'm just supposed to take care of you. That's all I know. I don't know what it's going to mean. The results are not the issue. It's did you do what God asked you to do? It's also a year where we transform from fans of Christ to followers of Christ. I would suggest to you that our church is pretty intense about being fans of God. I mean, literally, we buy the merchandise, yeah? I mean, we got the Christian shirts, we got a million Bibles. I mean, we're pretty pumped about Jesus. I mean, we do all kinds of stuff. You take time out of your day. There's, you're, we're fans of who God is. We're thankful for what he's done. But being a fan of Jesus Christ, as good as it is is still not a follower. A follower actually does what Jesus does. We think things a lot like Jesus. I'm not so sure we do what Jesus does. It's a big difference. From fans to followers, Christ said, do what I do. And lastly, I'll say that what I think it means to have the heart of a servant is that servants, by definition, check in with their master before they get started on their own stuff. Right? Isn't that true? Isn't that what servants do? Sir, is there anything I can get for you? Before you go off and go play. Or before you go off and handle things of your own. You check in and say, is there anything I can get you before I step out? That's what servants do. So we should begin our days... By saying, Lord, is there anything you'd like me to do today? And then if it's silent, that usually means, I'll let you know. It doesn't mean you have the day off. It means I'll give you a call if there's something I need. Then you have to be sensitive and answer your cell phone when he calls. Right? Because he's going to periodically just touch base with you and go, hey, real quick, that little one, they need something then you're on task. Why? Because Jesus wants to go take care of them and you're his primary vehicle. You know, in trying to live differently, I, as I have told you before, I try not to teach a message without having to engage in it myself before I present it. So I've been trying to live differently. And one of those things is, is allowing myself to be very uncomfortable with how I'm currently living. That was, that was something that I needed personally to do. It doesn't mean you have to. When I was at the, uh, the 
traction conference why i was gone from here i did the traction conference here it was a wonderful conference um there was five different sessions of workshops that were available i was teaching two of them that meant i had three open so i went to three separate classes to go try to learn and be uncomfortable so I walked into one class and it was about Agape International Missions and that was about sex trafficking for children in Cambodia. That was brutal. If you, anybody knows me, you know I, I'm real sensitive about two things. Animals being hurt, kids being hurt. You mess with any of those two things and I will come after you. Right? Now adults, hey, kill as many as you want, don't care. Alright. <laughs> don't mess with kids. So I'm in there listening to this, listening to brutal accounts that the girls hand wrote about rape day after day. My heart's breaking. Then I go into another class, and this other guy just really connected in with him. Uh, he wrote a book called Soul Graffiti. His name's Mark, and Mark Scandred, and, and I just loved his nature. He wasn't militant. He wasn't crazy, he was mellow, easygoing, fun to listen to. Well, a number of years back, probably about a little over a decade now, he was living in Minneapolis, Minnesota with his wife and his kids, and they were trying to figure out what it means to live like Jesus, and they thought, what would I do to live more like him physically? They picked up their whole family and moved to the Castro District of San Francisco. They lived there for the last decade. All his stories start with, so there was a dead body out in the back side, you know, of my house. We didn't know where it came from. The police are all around. That's all his stories. There's shootings and there's drug addicts and a lot of his stories start out with, so I was talking to a transvestite, right? That's his world. He picked up with his and moved and raised his kids in this environment to show them what it means to live like Jesus. Every day he started a new ministry and he goes through and walks the streets and talks and spends time with people. Now that'll just shake your world up. Boy, was I uncomfortable. Isn't that kind of the point? And I felt a little bit of a nudge from God to check in with him a little bit more during the morning. Now, you all know what I do for a living, so it's very tempting and easy to say, I'm going to go engage with God throughout my day. I don't really need to necessarily have a morning devotional time. I'm going to spend all day long with him. So, And yet God was going, well, I would actually like that. So this whole last week, the beginning of the year, I decided to set my alarm 45 minutes earlier. That's really uncomfortable for me. I like that time. Right? I want to sleep. Sleep is happy. <laughs> and I get up and out of all the temptations to go, I'm going to study the Bible later. Why am I doing this? To how about you just read through Matthew and just read again for just you and me. Not to teach. Stop it. You're not because I'm analyzing. He's like, quit it. I just want you to read it. And I want you to pray. I want you to talk with me because you're going to forget me the rest of the day. But God, I'm doing stuff for you. I didn't say you weren't going to do stuff for me. I said that you're not with me. It's about living differently. Yeah? I would hope that you would join me in that. So one massive piece this year is what does it mean to think and live like a servant? The second massive piece is what does it mean to live as a family 
of servants. What does it mean to be in this church, to be a part of it? That where there's no more lone rangers, I'm doing my own thing, I just come and hang out and then I go home and I don't really interact with anybody else. That's done with, that's over. This is not about, I have my own little kingdom and I can see your kingdom on the other hill, but we don't really interact. We're not just neighbors to where you wave at them and go, oh Lord, please don't let them say anything to me. Hi. Don't come over here, don't come over here. Hi. Right? It's about engaging in each other's lives. You go, I don't have time for that. I know. Busyness, I believe, is the number one destroyer of the American church today. How do I know that? Because every time I meet you in counseling and we talk about you needing to make some changes, I hear the same answer every time. I get it. You don't have time. Why? Because our priorities are screwed up. We need to understand that we serve one another because that's what love is about. We serve alongside one another because we're part of a team and a family. And we serve one another here because the world's coming here. How do I know that? Because I'm the one meeting in the back rooms and realize that all the plastic exterior that you see just shields pain. And I know that there's a big movement in the world today going, you don't want to serve in the local church, you've got to serve outside, outside, this is all selfish. No, it's not. Because everybody sitting next to you is broken. And they walked in because they were broken. That's why we serve one another. But let me tell you what this year is not. It's not add more stuff to your busy schedule. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of you need to simplify. You need to cut back. You can go, how in the world am I going to do that? We have to get creative. There are certain things that you do not need because they're good. They're just not the best. For example, for some of you, we've become amazingly brilliant on politics, and we spend all of our time listening to news stations, focusing on it, watching TV every night, and constantly trying to fix the nation in our head. That is good. It's not the best. Because if you're spending all your time on that, and ministry has done nothing in your life, and God has no place. Oh, well, I'm, I'm thinking about it for God. All right. You might need to wrestle with that one. And you know what? For a lot of us, we've really got caught up in feeling like we're not going to make any difference, so why does it matter? And so we spend an awful lot of time in TV or gaming. Is that the best? I understand needing to chill out. I understand being exhausted from a day of work and wanting to watch a show in the evening. But when you have your DVR to where it's going, no more room, no more room, okay, and you're going, what am I possibly going to delete? Okay, there's something wrong. <laughs> Can't record this because it's blocking this, and right? Okay, too much TV. Realign. Well, I can't possibly, you know, I'm, I'm working and I'm, you know, I'm working. I don't really have time to do this. And maybe you're working too much. Hey, I'm just thankful I got a job. Hey, me too. However, we must be wise. 
And if your children are suffering because you're nowhere around, you've shifted from the best down to just good and perhaps damaging. We must live differently. That's what servants do. What it's not is a year of guilt. Right? A lot of people serve out of guilt that will not last. I mean, it's motivating at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you all kinds of stats that will break your heart. But that's not going to last. That's not a true reason to serve. You serve because it's your identity. You serve because of your love of God. You serve because when you do, it brings Him glory. Which is our whole point in being here. It's to bring Him glory from all over the earth. Is God getting a huge amount of glory rising up from your corner of the world? That's the question. Is it rising up from what you're doing? Huh. Mostly it's a challenge to do different things based on different priorities. So how are we going to do all this? Well, we're going to uh, do a series of things. One of them is through engaging with God's Word. We have a number of books that we are going to cover this year to engage with it from a servant's point of view and a family point of view. So a lot of you email me and you ask me, so what books are we going to cover next year? Here they are. This is what's going to happen. We're going to start off the book of Joshua today. It's going to be a 16-part series through that part of the Old Testament. It's fantastic. It's all about how we're going to engage as a family and have this corporate group calling and move out and take new land. And it's all kinds of exciting, right? So we launch with Joshua. Then we're going to hit First Peter. We hit Second Peter last year. We hit First Peter this year. Then I have what's called a super servant series, right? And I named it that because it would irritate you. <laughs> right? Because it sounds stupid, but you're never going to forget it. It's the super servant series, and it's four people in the Bible that will blow your mind. Check it out. These are the people. Hosea, jo- Josiah, Epaphroditus, and Priscilla and Aquila. If you haven't heard from them, it's probably how they want it. They're servants that don't get the headlines. And they're living like we need to live. Then, after that, we're going to close the year with two books, 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. If you stay with us throughout this year, you will have a steady diet of the Word pounded into you, but only on the weekends. You have to engage outside of that to learn what it is to be a servant. Now, in addition to that, We are going to have four separate weekends this year, sprinkled throughout the year, where we're going to change up everything. We are going to change all the seating, have a certain amount of seating in the center, blow out the sides, have four separate quadrants in each side. You walk into church, and that's a weekend where we don't just go to church, we become the church. And what do we do? We have stations set up where the whole hour and a half that we're together, little bit of worship, little bit of devotional, primarily what? Packing backpacks for the homeless. Making whole huge packs for going overseas for the kids in Uganda. Doing things for the community. Having small groups where we'll just go, hey, we're heading out to go deliver some stuff. Who wants to go with me? We are going to engage and be the church. We're going to worship differently in the sense of maybe we'll have a prayer corner and we'll have time for people to engage with God through just writing stuff to the Lord. A lot of the things that we did in the healing and worship night in the back, 
where you begin to pray and go through things and engage with God in a fresh way. We are going to be different with the Lord. Am I nervous about those? Yep. That probably means it's going to be good. Right? Why? Because we have to live differently. We have to be different. That is a bit of what the year of servanthood looks like. Are you excited about it? I think it's going to be fascinating. So now let's transition out of that and let's talk about Joshua. You're going to need a Bible. Please raise your hand if you don't have a Bible as we kick off this new series throughout this book of one of the most fascinating men in all the Old Testament and what God did through him. So keep your hands up until the team gets a Bible down to you. And while you're receiving those, let me give you some intro information. Anytime we engage with a brand new book of the Bible, we got to ask the question, why do we care? Right? What's it about? Who wrote it? What's going on? Because it colors how we're going to look at it. So we start out with who wrote the book of Joshua. Any guesses? All right, fantastic. Might be Joshua. Now, we don't know because it really, it records his death. That's really hard to write. Okay? So what's likely is that he wrote the majority and kept personal accounts of what happened. And then people edited things in and his death was recorded by his son and his son's death was recorded by his son. That's likely what happened that at a later time, people compiled it all together and made it a nice shiny book. All right? That's probably what happened. But when did this kind of stuff happen? And who in the world is Joshua? Anybody remember this guy? Love this guy. This guy's amazing. First of all, he was born a slave. Do you remember? That's something that we bypass and forget. He was born in Egypt. Why? Because the Hebrews were in bondage to Egypt for how long? 400 years. So he grew up being oppressed. He knows what it is to live in desperate, horrible situations. But he saw some amazing things. He was raised a warrior. You're going to find very few people as tough as Joshua. Interesting, he got an opportunity to see the Exodus. He was there as a part of the team when they emerged out of Egypt. You all remember the big plagues and all that stuff that hit Egypt that allowed them to get out? You remember all that? What was the big, huge one that capped it all off? We now call it the day called Passover. Remember? The angel of death sweeps in. Here's what I found fascinating. Warren Wearsby pointed out that Joshua was the first son of none. You're like... Do I know anything about that? Yeah, his dad has a dumb name. No, it's beyond that. Why is that important? Because what was the angel of death supposed to do when he came through the camp? Kill the firstborn. Joshua was pretty concerned about that. Right? He was in the house praying that the blood would cover. He was in the house and everyone's staring at him. If he goes down, it didn't work. So he has a huge investment in what's going on. He had an opportunity to go out, tie in with Moses, saw the Red Sea part, and began this incredible journey. But he was raised a warrior. 
He was a tough guy. The first recorded incident of seeing Joshua on the map, he was leading the army of Israel against the fight with the Amalekites two months into the journey, the day the sun stood still. Do you remember that story? That was a time when Moses' hands were up, they would win. When his hands went down, they would lose. Joshua's down there hacking away, going, get your hands up, man. Right? Because he's busy fighting. He was tough. He went out fighting along the way. And he launched that journey at 45 years old. Now, he was also sent right early on to go spy out the land. You remember the 12 spies that were sent out? He was one of them. They go out, 10, 12 guys look at the land. They said, it's a beautiful land, but there's no way we're going to get it. The guys are too big. Two men said, oh, I don't think you have that right. I think our God's bigger. Let's go in. Let's take the land. Who was the other guy? Joshua and Caleb. Another tough guy. He too was 45 years old. These two 45-year-old men walked in and said, we can take it. Let's go. I'm all in. Let's battle. Let's kill everybody. I can do this. Right? Came back. The whole nation listened to who? The two guys or the ten guys? The ten guys. As a matter of fact, they threatened to stone and kill Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua stood up under penalty of death for what God said. These are solid men. For 40 years, Joshua had to walk around and go, stupid people. Right? Because he knows they could have done it. Right? But what does he do? He, high, he locks in underneath Moses. He's his right-hand man, his aide. As a matter of fact, you would think, oh, that's a glorifying job. No, it's not. Moses gets all the credit. And Joshua, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, there's fire, smoke, God's presence is there. Where's Joshua? He's only halfway up the mountain waiting. Watching all the stuff. He's the guard over the stuff. Didn't get to see God. Didn't get to hang with the people. He was in the middle being trained at all times to be the next leader. Solid man. It says that when Moses would walk out, when the God's presence would descend upon the tabernacle. Do you remember that? That little movable tent thing? Moses would go out. All Israel would stand up. Oh, wow, Moses is going out. He's going to go talk to God face to face. Right? It says, then Moses would go home, but Joshua remained. Do you remember that? He stayed 24 hours around the clock as the guard of the tabernacle worshiping God. When you are intensely with God 24 hours a day... That's a lot of training. So who's taken over for Moses? This could have been the most devastating transition ever. Big miracle guy dies. Who's taken over? Everyone could have scattered, but they knew exactly who Joshua was. Joshua goes after 40 years. You ready to go? Let's do it. And they began to launch into the promised land. This man is an average, ordinary man in the sense that he has problems too. And you know what? It doesn't always go easy for him. He has to lead what? A group that is likely around 2 million people. That's a huge group to try to herd and move around. Right? But he's the man that God called. When did all this take place? It's around uh, circa 1300 B.C. It's called the Late Bronze Age. This is the same time in the period of history of the Trojan War. So if you're familiar, that was going on in another part of the world. 
Okay, so a lot of different things were going, a lot of advance in sciences. China was really moving forward math and a bunch of different things all throughout the world. In this particular part of the world were what's called the Canaanite peoples. That area of the world was known as Canaan, so whatever people groups settled there, they were generally just called Canaanites. But that was the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, all these. Whenever you hear a little ite on it, it's probably in that group. So there's at least seven or more people groups that are all called Canaanites. What were they like? Well, largely on the coast... They were the Phoenician peoples, the seafaring peoples, the commercial people. They weren't really into fighting a whole lot. They were into basically taking all your money. They were merchants. They were traders. They were brilliant, largely peaceful. So when you walk into this area, we always have this whole idea that they were tough and all that. Well, they were. But by and large, they were brilliantly intelligent. They had all kinds of literature and writing styles, and they had all kinds of advances in sight. They were smart people. This is where the Philistine groups were. All these different things were going in. Well, then what made them so bad? Only one area of their life was horrifying. Their religion. (laughs) It was written in ancient documents that those people were unequaled. In the brutality of their worship. You're like, what? They were doing the stuff in their religious area. The whole idea of burning kids alive. Sacrificing humans. Lots of blood. Lots of really psychosexual stuff in their worship. In all other areas of life, they seemed to be pretty put together. They had city-states. They were very sharp in their government. But when it came to their religion, they were nasty and they were bloody. And that got God's attention. And you go, I can't believe, and we'll talk later about the whole idea of the ethical idea of war, right? But you go, I can't believe God would just bring in the Israelites and just because he wants his kids to have a home, he's just going to let them slaughter everybody. Pause. Why were the Israelites in Egypt for 400 years? In bondage and slavery, God's own kids. Have you ever read why? It's one line in scripture that tells you exactly why. Because the sin of the Amorites had not reached full measure. What does that mean? It means I'm still working with the Canaanite peoples. So I guess you're just going to be a slave. For 400 years, he put his kids on the back burner to work on these people. Enough is enough. God said judgment is going to come upon you just like he came upon his own kids. And he used the Israelites to move in and wipe the people out. Now, what else do we need to know about all this stuff? When did it happen? Well, we know when it happened. Who wrote it? Great. But what's it about? It's a continuation of the book of Deuteronomy. And it basically says God kept his promises. God promised you a promised land. He's going to get you one. Why? Because he needed the promised land to be right in the middle of the center of the world. Has anything changed in all these years? Is Israel not always in the news? They're always in the middle of everything. Why? Because that's where God wants them. He puts them right in the center of everything bad to be a beacon of light. Now, are they doing it very well? Not really. That's why we're here. When the Jews were not doing what God asked them to do, he put them on pause for a second and said, Hey, I'm going to bring in some other adopted kids. Hey, Gentiles, come here for a second brought them in and the jews are like what are they doing here doing what you're not doing 
Oh. So now we're a big mixed up family, right? But the whole point is we're in the center of all the stuff that is crazy and wild in the world. Why? To be a beacon of light. If you ever wonder why everything around you seems to be difficult, a lot of times it's because you're supposed to be the beacon of light in the middle of that dark place. Well, so what's our whole vision together through this series? It's fill in the blank on your sheet in front of you. And it's simply this. And I'm speaking of Bridgeway, this local community of believers. We have an adventure that we must do together. We have an adventure that we must do together. How do I know that? Because God whispers and God's word shares that what we could do if we mobilize is astounding. Do you understand that we could mobilize at any given time 2,500 to 3,000 people to go make a difference? That's pretty powerful. I know it doesn't look like this in this room, but you have to see all the rooms. And you have to see it service after service after service. You'll get it. No more Lone Rangers. No more I'm doing my own thing. Welcome to the family. We have a lot to do. Let's dive into the book of Joshua. If you have not turned there, I have the page number for you. Let's see. It is page number, I can't say, 151 in the Bibles that were handed to you. Page 151. I swapped out my notes this morning. I edited it down for you. All right? That means relatively nothing. Here we go. Let's just uh, read through a, a little piece of this. And on each piece, I have a couple things I want us to take home from it. So before we enter into God's word, let's just pray together. Uh, Father, would you open our eyes to learn what it is to be a family, though dysfunctional we may be. We are your kids. We want to work together. We have to learn to work together. And Lord, we can do so much more movement of your kingdom if we're together. Lord, may you be glorified in our midst. May we change our hearts, change our minds, and change our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon. From the great river, the Euphrates, meaning all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. It's interesting. God just went in. He said, I'm going to give it to you. How did that go? It took him about seven years to get a hold on the area. Then the rest of the 25 years of Joshua's life that he has is spent trying to get people to settle down and work together. But because of compromise, they don't really get the land for about 500 more years. Compromise costs a lot of time. If you want to make this series applicable to your life, if you want it to matter for you, I want you to think about it like this. As Israel was challenged to go in and take the land that they might have rest, so too has Jesus Christ 
broke the yoke of sin in our lives and said, now go take your territory. I want you free. I want you to take over every sin in your life. Grab every corner. Don't you dare leave any of that garbage around. I want you to go in. I want you to get brutal. I want you to excise it. I want you to get it out. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be frustrating. There's addictions and compulsions and things that you just don't want to give up. There's little corners of secret. There's things that you don't even know. There's masks that you wear. But I want you to get in. I want you to root it out. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you would do it my way, I will set you free. But when we compromise and say, I'm tired of fighting, forget it. Just leave it alone. Boy, that's a lot of time. Then we end up in later years of our life and we've still in the same place we were before. If you want to make this applicable, think of it like that. See, with this transition from Moses to Joshua, we went from one great leader to another great leader. Is there only one? No, of course not. God has so many. You are being used right where you're at. You are the leader for your circle of influence. You are necessary, every one of you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. But there's some things we can learn from this. Imagine this huge dysfunctional family moving out and try to accomplish something together. Could we do that? I think we can. A lot of us are resistant, but I think we can do this. I think we can make a difference in our lives and the lives of those around us. I think we can begin to root stuff out of our own lives. For example, all the isms, right? Racism. We've got to get rid of it here before we get rid of it out there. Right? All different kinds of things. Materialism. Where it's rooted in our lives. It's locked in our lives. We've got to get that junk out of there so then we can make a difference in the world. But we're going to do those things simultaneously is engage and change. What else do we learn from this? Well, now we don't have land to take, but we certainly have kingdom space to take. We need to be taking over more area in our lives and areas where we have influence to make them kingdom spaces. What's a kingdom space? It's a place where God's getting glory from. Is God getting maximized glory from the world around you? Probably not. What are we going to do to change that? All right? And then lastly, they're going to be put in the middle of it all, and so will we. Prepare for war. And the story moves on in verse 5. God says, No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. What do we learn from that? Sounds easy. Sounds like God's going to give them everything. But it's a lot of work. Pretty tough. We can do this. We got to do life on God's terms. When we do it His way, we live a life of no regret. When you get done with your day, it is not what have you accomplished. Please know that. God does not love you by your performance. The only question at the end of the day was, did I do what God asked me to do? If you can say yes, that was a success and you have no regret. 
But if we spent the vast majority of our day chasing our own dreams and building our own kingdoms, you may have accomplished a lot, but you just walk backwards. What else do we learn from this? God's presence means everything. God says, be strong. Why? Because I'm with you. If I'm with you, remember you ever heard that uh, phrase, God plus one is a majority, right? If God's with us, who can be against us? The only thing that matters is if God's with you. He says to Joshua, stick with me, kid. We'll do this. We're all in. Pick it up in the Bible. It says, verse 7, be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Moses was keeping running records of what God told him. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. A life of obedience is a life of success. It is hinged upon being rooted in God and rooted in his word. Joshua had probably a loose gathering of what we would now consider the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He lived that. He breathed that. He meditated on that. What does meditate mean? There's nothing in the Bible about the little om thing. That's not the meditation of Scripture. Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for meditate means to mutter. What does it mean? It means to whisper under your breath. When there was a memorization going on, there was constant recitation or reciting it over and over and over to burn it into their minds. And so you would whisper it under your breath. And what's so interesting is Joshua 1.9 became our family's verse. About a couple months ago, it had nothing to do with this series whatsoever. A couple months ago, because I struggle with anxiety and so does my daughter Jillian. Because of that, we decided we needed to pull out a verse that would bring us comfort. We put it up on the fridge and all of us tried to memorize it. And so the little one, Andy, she comes up and whenever I ask her anything about the Bible, she'll go, Is that Joshua 1.9? Right? Because it's the only one she knows, so. so it fits in everything talks about not being terrified, not being discouraged, because God's with you. There's nothing to fear. God's there. If God's there, everything's all right. But boy, God's not afraid of anything or anyone. He's going to walk you in some scary areas. But he's big. Huh. Goes on, and it says, be strong and courageous. Don't you dare give in to fear. Don't you dare let Satan dominate you. I'm here. Verse 10. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your supplies ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. But to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they got different instructions. Joshua said, remember the command that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. 
The Lord your God is giving you rest and has granted you this land. Your wives, your children, your livestock, they can stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan. But all your fighting men, fully armed, must cross over ahead of your brothers. You are to help your brothers until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you. And until they too have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back and occupy your own land, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you east of the Jordan towards the sunrise. Remember, there was 12 tribes and they all had different allotment. Reuben's tribe, Gad's tribe, were really into cattle and raising um, herds. They wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan. So if you're looking at a map, the, uh, the right side of the Jordan, they had a slot there because those were pasture lands. The tribe of Manasseh was enormous. So they split it in half, left half there, half got to go on the other side. So when they all took it as a team, they settled on the right-hand side of the Jordan River. So they're going, great, we're done. Right on, we got our place. Oh, good luck, guys. See ya. You guys can go ahead and fight for your own territory. God said, I don't think so. Oh, you have rest, but your brothers don't have rest. You're not done. Get up, get all your fighting men, and go help your brothers until they have the rest that you have. This is how we make it practical. I appreciate that some of you have made wise decisions in your life and your life is not in chaos. I appreciate that through, for some of us, we're a little bit older in life, right? And we've been able to settle down and settle some issues and we're more settled in life. And you have more peace because you've submitted more things to the Lord. I appreciate that. But you are not done because everyone around you is not at rest. You can rest when they rest. But as long as they're in turmoil, we're still a family. We work together. Get up, go in, and help us settle down. We need you. We need you badly. Are you ready to go if God asks you to go? Because he taps them on the shoulder. Joshua was ready. And he said, three days we cross the Jordan, let's go. That's a big deal. You ready to go? What if all of a sudden the missions team comes up here and they say, all right, team to Indonesia, who's going? You're like, I never even thought about it. Think about it. Why? Because if God taps you on the shoulder, there isn't a whole lot of time to just sit there and dwell on it. Are you ready? If you are called to go, you got to go. Hmm. We finish it off with this, verse 16. How did the people respond to all this? Then they answered Joshua and said, Whatever you've commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whether you may command, whatever you may command them, they will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. That's awesome. Right? We're going to institute that here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do what I say. I'll kill you. <laughs> Makes it a little easier. What do we need to learn about this? A couple things. First of all, the people understood what it means to follow. You can't lead well until you're a good follower. How long did Joshua follow before he led? Do you know how old he is when this story starts? 85. 
85 years old. He was 45, wandered the desert for 40 years. At 85, God said, and go time. All right, so when he goes in, I will tell you this. Who, else is, who also is 85? His buddy, Caleb, right? I'm going to tell you, there's a part of the story where Caleb goes, give me the toughest part. Give me the hardest part. I will go and blow those guys out at 85. So here's what I suggest. I suggest that we raise the military age in America to 85. <laughs> all right? <laughs> so all of you here in the congregation that are 85, we're going to war, right? And they immediately just lock up and load. And these guys are so tough. It's not about the young kids right there. They just walked in and they said, we'll take them over. All of them. Give them all to me. These are strong men of God. Doesn't matter how old they are. Amazing. What else do we learn about this? One thing's kind of funny is they said, just like we obeyed, Moses will obey you. <laughs> He's like, I was there. You didn't obey Moses at all. What are you talking about? Give me lip service. Get out of here. But what's intriguing is the leaders had learned by that time. They said, if God's with you, I want to be with you. If God's not with you, I'm out. But if God's with you, we're in. This must be the response of this congregation. The leadership that guides you, insofar as we align with what the Lord is asking us to do, you go with us. When we deviate from what God wants, don't you dare follow. Do you understand? You're following God. You're not following men. You examine everything that comes across this pulpit. You examine everything in your small group. You examine everything in your classes, your teachings. If God is with us and we are in line with him, follow. But if God is not a part of that, walk away. You understand what I'm saying? Don't you dare fall in line with that just because a man is charismatic. Just because a woman is amazing in her teaching. It does not matter. If God's there, go with all your strength, all your courage, and sign up first. But only because God's there. Amen? Amen. As we close, this is it. We are servants of God. Our life is not our own. So we will check in every day and say, Master, what's on the docket for today? And then we wait all day long for marching orders. We must live differently. We have an adventure that we are about to do together. And so where you must lead, lead. Where you must follow, follow. But do it with all strength, all courage, and all faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this year. Lord, that we may walk in with a brand new exciting vision of what you have for us. That, Lord, that you have not been content to let us settle to compromise, to be as we are, but Lord, you are calling us to mobilize, to stand up, to change, to get our hands dirty in the year of servanthood, and to be what you've asked us to be. Lord, may we internalize that and live differently and start asking Jesus, what do you want us to do today? We are yours, and we hand our lives over to you as living sacrifices. Be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.